Mark chapter 6. We're just going to look at the first six verses this morning, and let me dive right into that with you. Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Here we find our author who's been leading us through this gospel and telling these stories of Jesus and recording his words to people. And Mark writes here at the beginning of chapter 6, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we give you glory and praise and worship because our God, you are worthy of those things. And we are so thankful this morning for everything that you've done in our lives. Lord, you, you woke us up this morning. You've given us the gift of life for another day. And we thank you for our great salvation today through Jesus Christ because of what he has accomplished for us on the cross. And Lord, as we look into your word now, I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would bring it alive to us, that we would understand it and that it would travel the distance from our mind to our heart, and that we would put it into practice and it would come out through our lives, Lord. Would you give us that grace today, God, that we might know you better, that as we trust in this book, which we believe is our perfect guide for faith and practice, Lord, that you would help us to walk with you more closely, Jesus, that you would help us to abide with you. We pray this all in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Well, let's work through these verses together. So at the, just to remind you, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus was at the home of Jairus. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Mark's gospel. But at the end of chapter 5, he's at the home of Jairus, and, and he's just raised Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead. That's how we left him at the end of the chapter. And now Jesus leaves the home of Jairus and and travels the 25 miles approximately to the village where he grew up, Nazareth. The Greek word that's used here uh, that you have translated if you're reading the ESV like I am, but you probably have something like hometown or, or a word that means something similar in your English translation, but the Greek word there is Petrita. And Petrita could also be translated his own country, Jesus came back to his own country, or, or literally, what the, the, it's, it's from the Greek word, the root of it is from the Greek word for father. And so he came back to his fatherland. He came back to his hometown, since we're talking about a very small village in Nazareth. What is it about our hometowns? How, how many of you would say you have a love for your hometown, the place you grew up? Let me see your hands. Yeah. 
How many of you would say you have a, a, a love for, like, say, your high school where you grew up? Let me see your hands. I'm not with you at all on that one. So, like, a lot of you, like, I'm trying to see. It's hard because I'm in the light, you're in the dark. That's not meant spiritually, but, like, physically <laughs> in this room. It's kind of hard for me to see who's out there. But, like, I, I imagine, like, someone like a Ron Salisbury, right, or Tim Hines, they were probably, like, a crowd in high school. Like, Neil Green. Neil Green had to be a crowd in high school, right? I was, like, D-minus crowd, I was the guy you guys beat up in high school. Thanks a lot. I'm not bitter or anything. It's not like I'm still holding on to that more than 30 years later. I didn't like school. I dreaded going to school. I absolutely, it was a nightmare. But still there's something about my hometown of Grand Ledge. And I don't know what it is. I still... I, I, you have memories that are vivid when you're growing up. Like, like, it's, like a certain song comes on the radio today, and I can still tell you the first time I heard that song where I was in my hometown. Anybody with me? It's just vivid. And, and there's something about your hometown. And I wonder if, if Jesus felt that as he came into his patrida, his hometown, his own country, his fatherland. Now, what should we know about Nazareth? Let's talk about Nazareth specifically. Well, it was the village where Jesus grew up. That's about all you need to know. <laughs> there's, there's not much to Nazareth other than that. There's not much else to say that would be significant. It's, it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not even mentioned in the writings of, well, other ancient documents, such as the writings of Josephus. And if that's not familiar to you, Josephus was a Jew who worked for the Roman Empire, and he wrote the history of the day. It's not even mentioned in Josephus. It's not even mentioned in other sacred Jewish documents like the Talmud. Nazareth is not even mentioned. It doesn't even get a footnote. The population was most likely only a few hundred people, maybe about 280, 300 people at the time when Christ was growing up in it. It was kind of like Omer, Michigan. Anybody know Omer? Again, let me see your hands. A lot of people know Omer. So we were living in Saginaw for, for 10 years, and we would drive through Omer on our way up the coast to more interesting communities. Omer wasn't really a place that was, it's not really a destination spot in Michigan. It's a little town on the way to places like Agre or Tawas or Ascoda, if you've uh, um, ever canoed or kayaked the Asabo River and you launched in Ascoda, you may have gone through Omer on the way and you just didn't realize it. So maybe there should be more hands out there because it's a town that's easy to miss. What's the population of Omer, you ask? Well, I happen to know. 288. It is... The smallest city, it's actually a city, and it's the smallest city in Michigan. 288 people. Do you think that everyone in Omer knows everyone else? I would, I would dare say. I've heard some of you say similar things about St. Clair and Marine City. Growing up in these communities that, you know, everybody knew everybody. 
Everybody, there's a good side to that, and then there's the, the bad side. Everybody was in everybody else's business too, right? But I imagine in a community that small, everyone knows everyone. Well, Jesus probably knew everyone in Nazareth, and probably everyone in Nazareth knew Jesus as he was growing up. And this kind of really plays into the dynamic that we see in these six verses in Mark chapter 6. They knew Jesus before he was a superstar. They knew Jesus before he was Jesus, when he got big and got famous. And as we've been tracking through Mark's gospel, flocks of people were coming after him to be healed or to have a demon cast out or to listen to his teaching or just to be a witness to it. Nazareth was a small and obscure village that we only know about due to the quite famous person who grew up there. Do you remember what Nathaniel said to Philip? Do you remember his words in John chapter 1 when he first told him about Jesus? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, apparently the answer is yes to that question. Going back to Mark chapter 6, though, let's look at verse 2. Because Mark records for us here in verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now, understand, it's not unusual at all that Jesus was invited to teach. This was actually quite common. Even in light of the criticism that we're going to read and study here, the criticism that's cast against Christ, it's very normal and natural that he was asked to teach. Any qualified man could teach in the synagogue. And Jesus was certainly well-known. I mean, he, he was a hometown boy, and now he was famous. And, and so they had someone famous who had grown up in their community leave, and now he's coming back. And of course, they had him speak in the synagogue. And, and during the service in the synagogue, Jesus would have read from passages from the Torah and what's called the Haftarah. The, the Torah is the, the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He would have read a passage from the Torah. This was common synagogue practice. The speaker would get up and they would read a passage from the Torah, and then they would explain it. And then he would read a passage from the Haftarah. This would be uh, the prophets, the major and minor prophets. So he, maybe he turned next to Isaiah or to Jeremiah or to Daniel. And he would read a passage from the prophets, from Haftarah. And then he would explain it to the people. How did the people in Nazareth look at the text? How do they respond to what they hear? The ESV translates the Greek word into English, Astonished. The word itself is exoplesanto. It's a Greek word that can be translated astonished, but it also has the meaning of being overwhelmed. More literally, it means to be knocked out. They hear Jesus teach and they're kind of blown away. That's how we would say it today. They're knocked out by his teaching, they're overwhelmed by him. And then, as you see, Mark records a series of questions that filled the synagogue that day. They're overwhelmed by his explanation of the Torah and the Haftarah, and then they start asking questions. Wait a minute. Where did, they, where did he get these things? What, what are they talking about? His teaching, his explanations of, the, of these passages. Where, where did he get these things? What is the wisdom that's given to him here? 
And how are such mighty works done by his hands? You see, they had heard the stories like everyone else, right? They had heard the stories of the healings. They had heard the stories of of how Jesus had cleansed the leper and and made a crippled man walk and and healed a withered man's withered the withered hand of a man and and cast out demons and, and gone head to head with legion and cast them out. They had heard all of these stories. And how is he getting all of this power and ability? And the people respond and react, and they're surprised. They're amazed. They're overwhelmed. They are knocked over by Jesus. Jesus is here teaching like a rabbi. Well, actually, he's teaching better than a rabbi, than the rabbis that they were used to. But here's the problem, right? I mean, he's teaching like a rabbi. He's training disciples like a rabbi. But all of the people who had watched him grow up are listening to this and looking at him, and there's one problem that's cycling around in their minds. He's not a rabbi. He's not a rabbi in the traditional sense. You see, Jesus had skipped the whole educational system He hadn't been trained as a rabbi growing up. He hadn't worked his way through the rabbi educational system. He hadn't studied under the great rabbis of their day. Dr. Ben Witherington writes about it this way in his commentary. He says, "Notice Notice that they neither dispute that he has wisdom or that he performs mighty works. They are just dumbfounded that it comes from a hometown boy like Jesus. This comes from the ancient mentality that geographical and heredity origins determine who is who a person is and what his capacities will always be they see jesus as someone who is not merely exceeding expectations but rather is overreaching that's what knocked him over that day he's one of us and who is he pretending to be it's the thought that would have been going through their minds Now, what was the training of Christ in? Well, you guys know this. I mean, who was the Jesus that they knew? Look at verse 3. Mark tells us what they're thinking. The people in the synagogue think to themselves, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? They're like, we know his family. We've, we've known him his whole life. There were probably older men and older women in the synagogue that day that were listening to him going, but I know him. I know his background. I know his mom. I, I know his brothers and sisters. Now, tectone is the Greek word translated here, carpenter, that you see in verse 3. And, and tectone is a very general word that it can mean a worker of wood or of metal or of stone, and probably for most tectones of the day, it was all of that. <laughs> you were a builder. Jesus was a builder. It's, uh, it's actually our English word that architect comes from. An architect is a chief builder in English, and this is where we get that idea from. It's from the Greek word tectone. And, and this is how the people of Nazareth knew Jesus. Oh, Yeah. I know Jesus. He's Mary's oldest kid. 
I mean, that's how they were seeing him. That's how they knew him. Ah, he, he once built me a kitchen table. It's a good table, <laughs> right? Now, actually, during this time and place, just to give you a little more historical background that I think is really interesting, there was steady work for tectones in that region for many, many years. I'll let Dr. R.C. Sproul tell you about it. He writes about where Jesus probably found work growing up. He says, when Jesus was a young man, Herod Antipas, know that name? It's going to come up a lot in the story to come. Herod Antipas inherited a portion of the kingdom of his father, Herod the Great, and became the Tetrarch of Galilee. He set out to build a city to serve as the regional capital of Galilee and to construct a palace for himself miles north of Nazareth. So Herod Antipas is building the city while Jesus is growing up a few miles away from Jesus' hometown. Historians tell us that he hired craftsmen and laborers from all around the district to help him to build the city. It is possible that those he hired included Joseph and Jesus. It is interesting to speculate that Jesus may have worked on this project for a man who would question him and mock him during his passion. I would suggest to you, church, that the men of the synagogue are not calling him a carpenter in verse 3. They're not calling him a carpenter, a tectone, in a derogatory way at all. You see, being a tectone was a respected profession, much like it is today. Many of them were probably carpenters. Many of them were probably tradesmen sitting in that synagogue listening to Christ teach. And so this isn't derogatory. This isn't them saying, oh, you know, he's a carpenter. It's not a derogatory comment on their part. What they're saying is this. He's no different than us. We knew him. He grew up with us. He's a carpenter like me. And where is he getting all of this from? And so for this reason, the text tells us they are offended by him. Look at the end of verse 3. Now again, sorry for hitting you with so much Greek here, but these words have nuances that I just love sharing with you. For this reason, they are offended by him. The Greek word is skandalizo. Now there's something really cool that happens in the text in just a moment. Scandalizo means, it's well, it's where we get our word scandal from. So I probably don't even have to explain it beyond that. Scandalizo is to create a scandal. They were scandalized by Christ. They were shocked. They were horrified that someone like them would position himself and say such things, overstepping what they considered to be his station. Dr. Mark Strauss writes this about, he says, Mark, the author Mark does not explicitly state the reason for this offense, but the implication is that they refuse to believe that one from such humble and familiar origins could be God's agent for inaugurating the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus is positioning himself as the Messiah, and he's a carpenter like us. They are offended, Dr. Strauss writes, and perhaps even jealous that this young upstart is acting with greater authority than his family background and social status warrant. Now, 
I, I just want to point this out to you, something really cool in the rela- relationship between the Greek words that I've shown you today. Uh, first of all, remember tectone. A tectone is a carpenter or a builder. Now, what a tectone would do if he was building with stone, especially, I imagine it would be the same with wood and metal as well, but when a tectone would go to gather his building materials to build the project he was working on, he would, and, and we have lots of skilled tradesmen and carpenters and builders here, I mean, you, what do you do? Or, or even if you're doing a home renovation project, like right now, I've got, I'm up to here in a home rental project, and in a house, and, and, you know, what do you do? You go to Menards, you go to Lowe's, or wherever you buy your, your product from, and you try to find the best possible building materials you can, right? And sometimes that's hard today. All I want is a straight two-by-four, for goodness sake. I mean, is that so hard, right? Or I want a plank of wood that doesn't have a huge gouge in it. That's all I'm looking for in life these days, right? And, and so a tectone would do that. A tectone would try to find, let's pick on rocks here. If you're a building with stone, you would try to find a stone that would be without blemish. You wanted to use the best possible ones that you could for your project. Now, if a builder, follow me here, if a builder found a stone that did not have integrity, what does it mean to not have integrity? It wasn't the same through and through. There were imperfections. There were weak points in it. If the stone did not have integrity, it was called a scandalon. It's from the exact same Greek word that scandalizo, scandal, offense comes from. The stone was an offense. And so this was called a scandalon. And it's the very word that's translated in verse 3, to offended. A scandalon is a building stone that would have been rejected by a tectone. And the people in Nazareth in the synagogue saw Jesus as a scandal. And so they reject him. But like so many other people who encountered Christ, track with me here, church, like so many other people who encountered him and rejected Jesus during his earthly ministry, they were actually fulfilling biblical prophecy because the prophets in the Old Testament had said that the Messiah was going to be rejected. Let me just show you one passage, Psalm 118, verse 22. You can turn to it if you like, but I'll read it to you. Psalm 118, 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be rejected by those who are closest to him. But God is going to make him the cornerstone. What is the cornerstone? The cornerstone in a building project was the first crucial stone that was laid that the rest of the structure would be built on. And the prophets talked about this as well. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. God says through Isaiah, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone. They may call it a scandalon. The people may say it doesn't have integrity. The people may reject him, but he is a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, God says, and he is a sure foundation. Amen, church? And isn't that what we have found to be true? Christ is sure and tested, 
and he is our cornerstone. Jesus applied this verse from the Psalms to himself during his debates with the religious leaders. He talked about this very idea, and he used that verse from the Psalms. Peter applies it to Jesus when he's being questioned by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. He calls Christ the cornerstone, using that verse from the Psalms. And Jesus is the rejected stone spoken of in the Old Testament that God has made the cornerstone. So how does Jesus respond to their rejection? Let's look at verse 4 back in Mark chapter 6. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Here's the point, I think. Here's the point. Jesus couldn't go home again. I don't know what was in his heart and what he was feeling, because remember, we're talking about someone who's 100% God, 100% man. I don't know what was in his heart as he was walking up the path into Nazareth that day. If he was excited, if there were people that he was legitimately happy he was going to see and interact with again. But God had led him on a mission. God had taken him somewhere else. God had revealed what his purpose and his plan for his life was. And Jesus was living that out, preaching the kingdom, healing those who were sick, casting out demons, proclaiming that the kingdom had come because the king had come. And what he found out when he went back home to Nazareth is you can't go home again. There was no longer place, a place for him there. And what, what impact does their rejection, as these people in the Nazareth synagogue reject him, what impact does that have on his ministry? Look at verse 5 with me. He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. Now, I think it's important that we see this verse in light of everything we know about Christ. We, we, we ought always to read the Bible and understand every passage in Scripture in light of the rest of the text. And I want you to remember what we learned in chapter 5 as Jesus heals the woman and as Jesus raises the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Here, here was the sound bite from that morning that I hoped you walked away with. I hope this is somewhat familiar to you. But faith is the channel through which the power of God can work in your life. Amen? Faith is the channel through which the power of God can work in your life. Dr. William Lane writes about that idea, and he says, it's not Mark's intention to stress Jesus' inability. I don't think that's the word Dr. Strauss, Dr. Lane, sorry, is saying we should use to talk about this. It's not that Jesus couldn't. It's not that there's an inability to perform a miracle. Dr. Lane goes on to say when he states that he could perform no miracles at Nazareth, his purpose is rather to indicate that Jesus was not free to exercise his power in these circumstances. Unbelief excluded the people of Nazareth from the dynamic disclosure of God's grace that others have experienced. In other words, other people were able to witness the miracles. Other people were able to be the recipients of the miracles because of their faith. But the people of Nazareth missed out. And we've seen throughout Mark's gospel that Jesus has been performing miracles in response to faith. 
Faith is the channel through which the power of God can work in your life. And we're going to continue to see this in Mark's gospel. We'll hit these passages as we go, but Jesus is going to say, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus will say to a blind man, as he is restoring his sight, go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's the channel by which my power can work in your life, is what he's saying to him. And Jesus is going to tell his disciples in Mark chapter 11, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whenever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Amen? Jesus would have done so much more if the people of Nazareth had only believed, church. It's, it's not that Jesus lost his power the moment he stepped over the borderline into Nazareth, but that he would not do miracles for them in the face of their blatant unbelief. Dr. Tim Keller writes this. He says, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the miracles of Christ. He didn't come to do magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could not do a deed that would not redeem Again, faith is the channel for how the power of God can work in our lives. There's one final verse we need to hit, and with this one we'll, we'll wrap up for the morning. But verse 6 in chapter 6 tells us that it wasn't just that the people were astonished with Jesus, but Mark tells us Jesus was also pretty astonished with them. Look at verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. They were offended by him. They were astonished by him. But when he saw their lack of faith, it kind of blew him away too. Kind of shocked him. Kind of knocked him out at their lack of faith. And so he leaves. And he goes about his mission. I want to close this morning with this thought for your consideration. Hopefully there's been some application you've been able to draw as we've been working through the text. But I want to just kind of focus in on this point. We can't go home again. Brothers and sisters, if we are following Christ, we can't go home again. Following Jesus means I no longer have a home to return to in this world. Jesus went back to his hometown, and he was rejected. And I'm just telling you, I've noticed that when I do allow the Word of God to shape my thoughts and my words and my actions, that it often leaves me without a place to stand in this world. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes where the Bible leads me, it takes me to a place of complete discomfort with this life where I, I don't feel like I've got any place to truly call home anymore in this world. 
because Scripture comes up against it. And as I've hopefully am being transformed by the gospel, this world will increasingly no longer be my home. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that is by God's design. God's plan, church, is not for us to feel at home in this world as, as if the kingdom had already come in fullness. Because that's when we will truly feel at home, isn't it? When the kingdom of God comes in reality and, and Jesus comes back and takes us to heaven but then recreates the earth and we live in reality as citizens of a kingdom, that's when we'll be home. We are sojourners here. We are exiles here. We are foreigners here. We are aliens here. We are, if you will, refugees here in this world. And that, that's not my idea. I hope I never get up here and just spout out my notions. I mean, this is straight from Scripture. It's what Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.11. He says, Beloved, talking to the church, talking to Christians, to other Christ followers, P Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, and I want to be really clear about this. It's not that we shouldn't care about this life. It's not that we should be, as, as people have often put it, so heavenly-minded we're no earthly good. That's <laughs> not what we're talking about here. Our lives here really matter. As a matter of fact, I don't think we even begin to comprehend the significance of our lives right now. I think it's one of those things that one day in the kingdom, in the presence of Christ, we will look back and we will be like, oh my goodness, I, I, I can't believe that everything I thought and said and did was that significant, that somehow God in his sovereignty took all of my decisions, the bad ones, the good ones, and wrapped them in providentially into his plan to create all of this. I think we're going to look back and we're going to be like, oh my goodness, our lives were so significant. All of our relationships, all of our interactions... I think it was C.S. Lewis that talks about the weight of glory, that when you are interacting with other human beings, you are interacting with people who are created in the very image of God. And in one way or not, you might be edging them towards an eternity with Christ, or you might be edging them towards an eternity away from Christ. Could there be anything more significant in life, church? And we're going to look back, and I think we're going to see that, how much our words, our actions, our thoughts matter. I really think they're going to resonate for eternity. We have work to do here in this life, church, for his glory. But this is not the end of the line for us. This is not, when, when you breathe your last here in this life, this is not where the story ends. We can't lose sight of this truth. Paul wrote this. He said, but our citizenship is where? Heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior. Who is our Savior? The Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of a kingdom. Our country still lies ahead of us. 
And we are journeying, hopefully following our captain, our savior, our king, one step behind him. We are journeying with him as he leads us to our country. This is not our home. Our home is yet to come, amen? Heaven is our home. And so what's the takeaway this morning? I hope it's this. I know it's been this in my heart all week as I've been meditating on this passage. Don't hold on too tightly. Don't hold on too tightly to anything here. Sorry, I got so excited I made a baby cry. I feel bad. Try to speak more softly. But then the downside of that is I lull the rest of you to sleep. (laughs) Don't hold on too tightly, friends. Jesus leads us, and the Word of God guides us, and there will be days when we do not fit here anymore. If you are following Christ, you should feel some uneasiness in this life. You should feel that tension of of not really fitting in this world anymore. And in those moments, listen, in those moments when you're up against it, you have to choose between being comfortable in the world and continuing to follow Christ. This is maybe the hardest part about our discipleship. And my encouragement to you this morning is choose Christ. When when you feel that tension between the world and, and, and how the world wants us to become comfortable and complacent and fit into its mold. Uh, Steve Camp, years ago, had a song called, uh, I can't remember the name of the song, but anyways, the world is going to squeeze you into its mold. It's going to conform you. It's going to try to pressure you to fit. And when you feel that tension and you know that Christ is leading you somewhere else, my encouragement to you today, church, is choose Jesus. Follow him. Follow him where he leads you. I think this is what the author, I'll end with this, I promise. I think this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. These verses for a while, I'm like, what is he talking about? At the end of the book of Hebrews, and I think I finally get them. I think I finally understand what these verses mean. The author of Hebrews says, it's chapter 13 somewhere. I'm sorry, I didn't write down the reference. But in chapter 13, the author of Hebrews says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. What's he talking about? Golgotha, the place of the skull where the crucifixion happened, was outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And the author of Hebrews says, so Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We know this. Because of the cross, because of what Christ did for us on the cross, we've been redeemed, amen? We have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus went outside of the city, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, and on the cross, he took care of your sins and my sins, and he extended his perfect righteousness to us if we've trusted in him alone for our salvation. But then the author of Hebrews says something remarkable. Then he says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Well, he can't be talking about the walls of Jerusalem and Golgotha anymore. So what's he talking about? He says, therefore, let us go to him outside of the walls, outside of the camp, and bear the reproach that he endured. And I think the next verse makes it all click. He says, for here, here, 
in this life, friends, in this world, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. All of our hope is in Jesus. Christ. All of our hope is in the kingdom to come. We have no place to call home here in this world. Our home still awaits us. And so, church, may we not be defined by anything in this world, but may we exalt Christ over every other allegiance in our lives because we are seeking the city that is to come. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads, please? And Close your eyes and let's pray together. Worship team, please come and join me. My prayer for us is that this truth, as the worship team comes, that this truth would really sink into our hearts this morning, that we would exalt Christ over all other allegiances because we know that our home is to come. And that until that day, until that day he returns for us, we are refugees here. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We are on a journey through this life, and it doesn't devalue our lives. It doesn't make our decisions insignificant. It just means that we should always have our eyes cast heaven and to think with heaven's priority set in mind. And to do things, to live our lives, to interact with people in such a way where we are seeing the weight of glory in them. That we could have a part in their sanctification. We could have a part in their growing toward maturity in Christ. You could have a part in someone going from death to life, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ, from darkness to light from foolishness to wisdom, you could play a role in that. Church, may we always see that. May we always see that our home is yet to come. And may we be faithful to endure until everything is set right, because we can certainly trust the one that we are following.